Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Phyllis CZ. Uh, She's the Chief of Sleep Medicine in the Department of Neurology, uh, the Benjamin and Virginia Bosch's Professor of Neurology, uh, dealing with sleep medicine. So, Phyllis, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much, Richard. It's a pleasure to be uh, here. Yeah. And we were just talking for a moment offline, but um, it sounds like you, you know, you didn't know from, you know, from childhood that you wanted to work in, in sleep medicine. So what's, how did you get into it? What's your background story? Well, it started when I was a graduate student. I was very interested in kind of the timing of reproduction, right? The seasonal changes. And this was about 1976 or 1977. And just so happened around that time, there was some really amazing science developing in the area of circadian rhythms. Um, Not so much sleep, but really circadian rhythms. It was the, in 1975, was the discovery of the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is located in the brain and the hypothalamus. And this was thought to be a major kind of a master circadian clock so that if you lesion that area, you would lose this near 24 hour or circadian rhythm. So that was very exciting. And then just a couple of years later was really the discovery of the molecular machinery that generates uh, circadian rhythms. So it was really kind of like interest in biology, but at the same time, with all these really fantastic developments in the field of circadian rhythms, I was just very drawn to the concept that timing must be important. Well, um, if if someone goes to bed, you know, I don't know, let's say they go to bed at 10 o'clock at night and get up at 6, and versus someone that goes to bed at like 3 in the morning and gets up at 11 a.m., you know, they both get eight hours of sleep. They both do this for a long period of years. What would you expect to see physically different in the people? You know, would hormones peak and trough at different times? Like, what would you expect to see? Yes, absolutely. So this is really very interesting because we're talking about maybe someone, the the first example would be someone who may be a little bit more of a early type. So we call these circadian chronotypes. And then the second example would be someone who we call an evening type or a late type. So what's really uh, interesting and important is that all their circadian rhythms, whether we're looking at the sleep-wake cycle, the timing of that, or we're looking at something like cortisol rhythms, we're looking at hormonal rhythms, or we're looking at behavior rhythms, even when they're going to be most awake, most alert, their mood, all of that will follow that timing. So the early person, everything will be occurring earlier, and the later person will be occurring later. So let's say their, their, their blood pressure rhythm. For the early person who's going to bed early and waking up early, it's all gonna be shifted by those number of hours. And uh, we do know that as long as you live, um, I would say in synchrony with your own internal timing, your own internal rhythm, 
you are very likely to be uh, healthy. But the problem is that late owl, that person who's going to bed really late and waking up late, they're also individuals who are more likely to be sleep deprived because, hey, like I say, no one probably gets fired by getting to work early, but they will if they get to work late. And that's the problem. So they have to wake up much earlier, more likely to be sleep deprived, to be able to live uh, in, you know, in a society that is, you know, or eight to five types of jobs. Yeah, all the advice and metrics I hear are based on time of day. And I think based on what you said, this is a mistake. It should be hours since you wake and hours before sleep. You're like when they say, oh, cortisol peaks at, you know, between 9 and 10 a.m. I'm just giving a random example. That's not probably accurate. It's probably more accurate to say if you're going to say something, cortisol tends to peak 60 to 90 minutes after you first wake up. And again, I'm making this up. I know it's not accurate, but as an example, what's your thought on that? Absolutely. It's really, and and I think what the science, the basic science, and also now the work that we've done in translational science really shows that it is about the internal clock. And your own internal clock is regulated by clock, by genes, right? They're regulated at a molecular level by the circadian clock genes. And whether you're, for example, if you're an owl or a late kite, it may be that your clock genes are, are expressing it in a little longer than 24 hours. You're a bit on the later side, whereas an owl, whereas a lark may be completing their molecular cycle of their circadian genes, let's say in a little less than 24 hours. So it is the internal timing that matters. And as you said, uh, Richard, which I think is really uh, interesting is that the, when you naturally wake up could be a good, um, I guess, way of thinking of what your internal clock timing is when you naturally fall asleep and when you naturally uh, would wake up is, is a good marker of what your clock is. But the important thing is that your internal clock timing needs to be synchronized or let's say aligned with that of the sun clock, with that of your social, physical, and professional activities. Okay. So what... What phenomena in particular are you studying about circadian rhythms? Um, are you looking at the, you know, the negative effects of disruption or do you, you know, have you looked at like polyphasic sleeping and if there's any other sleeping patterns that are more beneficial, like what, what's your focus? Yeah, so one of the kind of two, there are two overarching themes to uh, our work in the last couple of decades. One is to kind of study really the interaction of sleep and circadian rhythms and how either disruption or the ability to increase the robustness of these interactions can result in better uh, or negative uh, health outcomes. And our approach is really highly translational. The other area of great interest to us has been to understand why are there individuals who are owls and why are the individuals who are larks, but specifically how how do these risk factors uh, promote what we call circadian rhythm sleep-wake disorders, like those with delayed sleep phase or advanced sleep phase, or as you said, those who are irregular, who may have very, you know, they're sleeping on and off uh, 
all the time, several times during the day, and not having a consolidated uh, level of sleep. So that's been really our uh, interest in understanding the biology behind that and also finding treatments uh, for these individuals. I run a clinic uh, of what we call circadian medicine clinic where we treat patients with circadian rhythm disorders. Well, what are, what are some circadian rhythm disorders? Is insomnia one or is, uh, I mean, like, you know, what what's considered a circadian rhythm disorder? Well, insomnia could be, but typically uh, we want to differentiate that. So a circadian rhythm disorder is when, uh, let's talk about circadian rhythm sleep-wake disorders, which is what most patients come to see a doctor, would be when uh, they all present with symptoms of insomnia, like difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep uh, or excessive daytime sleepiness. But the symptoms are due to a abnormality intrinsically of the circadian clock uh, and or a misalignment between the, their internal body clock and that of their um, of the external environment that they need to, uh, for example, live in. So the most common one is that of what we call delayed sleep-wake phase disorder. Those are individuals, usually younger folks, who have difficulty falling asleep until maybe two or three o'clock in the morning or even later, and then having difficulty, of course, waking up in the morning early enough to be able to get to work or to get to school. That is the most common one. But as we get older, there are also the, uh, the, what we call the advanced sleep phase. These are individuals who fall asleep at seven o'clock uh, while they're watching TV, and they don't really want to. And then they're waking up at two or three o'clock in the morning. So early morning awakening, that could be insomnia, but that could also be due to a circadian uh, rhythm uh, abnormality. And then there are individuals who curiously, um, cannot even entrain. They're living in a light dark cycle, but they seem to be drifting every day later and later. And those are really the tough, uh, the tough ones because they can't even predict when they will be awake or when they will be asleep from day to day. Do people literally cycle around the, the clock when they have that particular disorder? So this disorder we call non 24 hour sleep wake rhythm disorder. These individuals do cycle around the clock. Uh, so let's say their intrinsic or biological uh, rhythm is maybe not exactly 24 hours, but maybe let's say 26 or 27 hours or they're longer. So some of these individuals will drift later and later by an hour a day. So that's pretty extreme. They come to see me because that's pretty extreme. So they are drifting. And so let's say in 12 days, right, they would be 12 hours away from where they started. And so it's very, very difficult. The, most of these individuals start out being delayed sleep phase. They're owls. Okay, I haven't quite met one who is an early type. So they start that way and something happens either in their environment or they get sick, something happens. And in their environment, for example, somebody had surgery and now they have back pain. They're in bed, for example, for a month. And now they were just a late person before and now they can become non 24 hour because they're not getting the strong time givers for the circadian system. 
such as life, such as social activity, uh, physical activity. Then they call those cues like Zeitgebers? Or yes, we call those Zeitgebers or the German word for time givers. That's cool. What, so, yeah, for people listening that, you know, I know you're not giving medical advice. We'll make the disclaimer. But are there a couple of um, easy tricks or things people could do to make sure that their clock keeps the fidelity of what they want? You know, when they wake up, what should they do? Before they go to bed, what should they do? Any general recommendations? Absolutely. So I just want to start by saying that light is the strongest zygaver for the clock, right? So it's really important to have regularity in your sleep and wake schedules and your exposure to light. Light in the morning is really important. That light in the morning tends to be not only brighter, but it also has kind of more of that short wavelength, like that blue-green light. And your biological clock sees that uh, the most. It's really more potent. So getting morning lights, getting light throughout the day is really important. And then dimming your lights out, with, let's say about three hours before bedtime is also important. So that difference between higher light levels during the day, lower light levels at night, is the strongest Zygaber for your circadian clock. In addition to that, you want to maintain a regular sleep-wake schedule as much as possible. I always say, I, I tend to recommend, don't deviate more than, let's say, two hours between your work days and your non-work days. And then on your work days, don't deviate more than one hour between your when you go to bed on, on a daily basis and when you wake up uh, in the morning. Physical activity is also important, Zygaber. And again, try to do that when there's light, follow the sun clock. Uh, it can be in the morning or it can be in the uh, afternoon, but probably not too close to bedtime. And then one thing that has really evolved that I think is overlooked is when you eat. So again, I say don't eat within three hours of bedtime. Uh, if you can help that, but also try to maintain uh, a regular feeding schedule during the day. Uh, and again, don't deviate too much uh, from that. You know, I, I saw an article where they said that, uh, I don't know, some people had a genetic mutation and they were called, I guess, short sleepers. You know, that's the scientific name for it, but they literally only needed, it looks like four or five hours of sleep a night. Is there any genetic basis or epigenetic basis for... Um, you know, some of these circadian rhythm disorders, or where do you think the problem lies? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yes, um, there are families with, uh, for example, delayed sleep phase, and uh, perhaps even more so with what we call advanced sleep phase. So there are families with that, they're familial, and there have been uh, mutations of the circadian clock genes have been found uh, in these uh, families, uh, in these individuals. However, and, and th those are the core clock genes, so which uh, in, in, these, in these individuals can either create a longer circadian period or shorter circadian period. So the shorter one would be in those individuals with advanced sleep phase, and the longer one would be in those with uh, delayed sleep phase. So uh, yes, there's a genetic basis for that. However, having said that, as a clinician, what I tend to also see are patients who are not, they don't have a family history necessarily of one of these uh, conditions, but um, 
but they do have a predisposition, which may be genetic. But at the same time, I think it's important that the environment and behaviors are likely to play an important role from taking somebody who is an owl and making them a patient of mine, in which they really are so impaired that they need medical help. Have you seen that, you know, uh, just changing their light exposure can have a profound effect? Or do people actually do it or they just say, oh, it doesn't work and then you need to like intervene to help them do it? Or like what, so, um, you know, non-medical methods, like have you seen them to be very effective or, you know, really medications are needed for, a, you know, a lot of people or some people? So what we do in our circadian medicine clinic is actually take care of these patients and we use light, melatonin, the timing of physical activity, as well as timing of meals as ways to entrain the circadian rhythm and to shift the timing of the circadian rhythm. So just because you have delayed sleep phase does not mean that we cannot treat that. So we use time to light exposure, morning light exposure, as well as a very low dose of melatonin, which is the brain signal for darkness at a specific time in the probably early evening to help and train to push that rhythm earlier or to push the rhythm later if we need to in people who are advanced, who wake up, for example, too early rather than those who wake up too late. We also use timing of um, exercise as well as timing of when they eat, for example. Many, uh, many people who are late individuals, they also eat very late. They may be eating even within an hour or less of their bedtime. And we move that feeding time earlier and we try to stabilize that. So there are treatments for that. Uh, and they really do are very similar to what we just talked about for just the, the late person who can on their own just get more light, uh, get more physical activity, but if that doesn't work, then they can come to our clinic. We can um, talk to them and we may be able to look at things such as the timing of melatonin. We rarely, rarely use a treatment for circadian rhythm disorders, a hypnotic medication. Have you thought about doing like, um, you know, a sleep boy camp in a way where you have a center and, you know, like some people they're in jail, but they just got to go to jail to sleep at night and then they release them in the daytime. I mean, a yeah. nicer version of this, but have you thought about a place where people report in for a week just to sleep there and then to wake up there and like at least that part of their day, you know, they agree to let you control and modulate it and maybe that helps rehabilitate them into a better sleep cycle? I'm glad you asked that because that's exactly what we're thinking about doing. We haven't done yet, done that yet. We, uh, we thought about what we call a circadian you know, camping trip but that could be a circadian hotel. We don't want to bring them to the hospital, of course, but we would. What we're thinking about is initially in the acute period, maybe for about several days, it's just giving them just very, very strong zygabers, right? To be able to just kind of push them into a, a stable uh, entrainment very quickly. But then we still have to continue to um, keep their rhythm in sync and that will require um, that these uh, individuals or these patients uh, also adhere and be compliant with a certain modulation of their light-dark cycle, 
as well as some of their other uh, behaviors. But yes, so we're thinking about using this methodology that you just spoke about as jump-starting the therapy. Yeah, I think that that uh, might be very positive. Like, a, you, know, you know, like you said, a circadian hotel or a sleepaway camp or something like that, you know? Yeah, like a sleepaway camp or like a spa, right? <laughs> yeah, that's probably the best way is a spa, right? A sleep spa, yeah. Let's think or about circadian. a sleepwake spa, right? With all these beautiful lights and that we can do with the right frequencies and feeding. So in some ways, not only just a spa, but a way to teach uh, what healthy a circadian lifestyle would be like. What's more important or appear, appears to be important when you wake up, if you're, you know, you give yourself the right side gamers or the preparation for sleep. I know all of it is important, but of the two, which one do you see that maybe people are more likely to do and be in control of and still have a positive effect? Think what you do during the day. And I would say getting light in the morning, even if you wake up, somebody who wakes up at 8 or 9 a.m., which is a little bit late, that's still okay. Get that light as soon as you wake up. Get that light in the morning. That is probably your best bet. If you had to do one single thing, that's what I would say. Get light during the day because getting more light during the day will protect you to some degree about getting a little extra light there at night. And then, of course, dimming the light. So what I would say uh, is how do you... Uh, is paying attention to light. It is the strongest time giver or sight giver for your clock. And then what kind of light? So I guess the best is sunlight, but what's a good proxy? Like is full spectrum anywhere um, near as good? The best is mimicking daylight, right? Doesn't have to be in the sun. You actually don't want to be necessarily out in the sun, but it's daylight. Sitting next to a window, that's daylight. It's fairly bright. Has to be uh, of higher intensity. So something that gives you a thousand lux or two thousand lux and a broad spectrum is fine but something that mimics daylight and there are now many um, uh, lighting devices that are this is a big industry now where they're trying to mimic daylight so that there's more of that blue green range light in the morning time and then it goes down to more orange and then red uh, as the day goes on, especially into the uh, late afternoon, early evening hours. So I, I would try to mimic that light as much as possible, but broad spectrum light is perfectly fine. And you can do this with artificial lights. There are circadian lighting options uh, out there as well, but light can be free. I would just say if you have a window, sit next to a window while you're working, for example, that would be uh, really great, especially people who are at home, but in the office uh, as well, or take what they call light breaks. If you don't have a window, then certainly during lunchtime, right, go out and be someplace either outdoors or someplace that you can be next to a window. And we have shown that just being close to a window within 50 feet of a window improves sleep quality in people who uh, we did the study in the field in, in, in office workers. Oh, and for how long is uh, the minimum you'd say that people should do this? Well, clearly as much as you can, but certainly uh, maybe an hour, you could do it. You don't have to do, you don't have to sit in front of a light box or in front of a window for an entire hour, but even in 20, 20 to 30 minutes, if you can do in 20 minute breaks for you know three or four times during the day, um, that probably would be the minimum. Okay, well, very good.
So Phyllis, um, what's on the horizon for you? Like we talked about, you know, maybe the sleepaway camp or the sleep circadian hotel. What else um, is coming for your research that you sense uh, you're going to figure out in the near term? Well, we want to educate people uh, a lot, and especially doctors and clinicians about uh, circadian rhythms and the importance of sleep. But what I'm really looking forward to, and we're beginning this, is to get these, not just these camps and, and clinics, but really to have what we call circadian medicine clinics, where patients who have circadian rhythm disorders can go to and that um, the clinicians are well, you know, they're not just educated, but they can deliver this type of therapy. So more of these, I guess, if you will call them circadian medicine clinics or hotels um, across the country. And finally, I think even more broadly speaking is the idea of in, in integrating the time domain into medicine. That timing is important in medicine. Timing of medications, timing of eating, timing of sleep is probably more important than the amount of sleep that one gets. Well, very good. Phyllis, thanks for coming on the podcast. And uh, where can people go to find out more about your work? Well, we have a circadian, uh, we, we have a, uh, a, a website. It's, uh, it's called Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. It's the Center for Circadian and Sleep Medicine. If you Google that, it'll take you right to that website. Okay. Well, very good. Phyllis, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.